You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock. Welcome back to In Pursuit of Development. Today, we're exploring the concept of the right to development, a pivotal idea officially recognized in the 1986 United Nations General Assembly's Declaration on the Right to Development. But who holds this right and who bears the main responsibility? This right is defined as the right of individuals and peoples to actively participate in, contribute to, and enjoy all forms of development, economic, social, cultural, and political, where their human rights and fundamental freedoms are fully realized. The right to development encompasses a spectrum of responsibilities from individual and collective human involvement to the duties of states and the roles of various actors, including multinational companies, NGOs and educational institutions. At the heart of the right to development are four overarching principles, self-determination, intersectionality, intergenerational equity and fair distribution. These principles ensure that development is inclusive, respects diversity, and is sustainable for future generations while emphasizing the fair distribution of the benefits of development. In practical terms, the right to development shifts the focus from mere needs-based development to a rights-based framework as seen in initiatives like the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the Bridgetown Initiative, which aims to reform the world of development finance, particularly how rich countries help poor countries cope with and adapt to climate change. The role of businesses in realizing the right to development is also crucial, with frameworks like the UN Global Compact and guiding principles on business and human rights guiding corporate responsibility beyond the traditional do-no-harm approach. However, the right to development is not without its challenges and critiques. While some scholars argue for its necessity as both a means and an end to realize human rights, others have questioned its legal standing. Joining me today is Surya Deva, who is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Development and a Professor of Law and Director of the Centre for Environmental Law at Macquarie University, Australia. Our exploration starts with a fundamental question. What exactly does the right to development entail and what is the added value? As we navigate this complex landscape, Surya and I explore how the principles of the right to development translate into action and what it means to move beyond traditional approaches to embrace business strategies for inclusive and sustainable development. I hope you're enjoying the show. Please remember to subscribe and share the episode with your friends and colleagues so that they too can be a part of this conversation with us. Surya, it's been uh, several years since I last saw you, so it's lovely to see you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dan. It's really uh, has been a while and uh, very glad to be part of this show. Thank you for having me. Now, Surya, you know this show is about global development, and it turns out there's something called the right to development. This may come as a surprise to many, but this was actually something that the UN General Assembly adopted. There is a UN declaration on the right to development. Tell my listener, Surya, what does this right entail, this right to development? 
So then, as you rightly pointed out, uh, the General Assembly adopted this declaration in 1986. So that has been a, a while ago. And that declaration, um, not only, I would say, it's not is creating this right, but it is solidifying and unpacking the elements of the right to development. So we are talking about economic, social, political, and cultural development. And in a way, you can see that this somehow relates to the uh, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. So often in practice, when we talk about right to development, both the states and other actors, they think, oh, this is economic development only. But normatively, that is an incorrect understanding. I would also like to highlight that when we talk about right to development, it also has those uh, three elements that people should be able to participate in, they should be able to enjoy and contribute to right to development. And I think those elements are crucial, Dan, because we are recognizing the agency of people and participation is absolutely vital. So I hope uh, that provides some context for the understanding. Of course, there are other aspects of it in terms of certain principles. For instance, self-determination is a key element. Fair distribution is a key element of right to development. Intergenerational equity. And I would also add intersectionality. I just want to firstly discuss with you who has the right to this development. And obviously in the human rights literature, if you have a right, then there's a corresponding duty by others. When I read these documents that we're talking really about a multiple bearers of duties and responsibilities to, to make sure that individuals like you and me can contribute, participate and enjoy this right. So as I see it, there are the individuals who, of course, have a responsibility to make sure that others can, can enjoy this, but also states, nation states have this responsibility. But then there are also many other actors in this field of development, right? So we're talking about NGOs, UN agencies, we're talking about multinational companies, charities, you know, there are so many others who are impacting development. Tell us a little bit about all of these duty bearers and how can one actually see all of these, this range of actors somehow helping you and me and others to participate, enjoy and contribute to fulfilling this right? That's a very good question, Dan. So as you and listeners will, uh, most of the listeners will understand that when we talk about human rights, normally most of the human rights are individual rights or at least that is the traditional understanding of human rights, that they are, these are individual rights. But increasingly, uh, human rights are also being seen as a collective right. And a very good example of that is right to development. So it's both an individual right of each human being. And I think that's where Amrita Sen's uh, idea of building that capability of each person is crucial, because that is the pathway to realize the development aspirations. But it is also a collective right collective right of people together as part of a society or community. And I think that's where states also become relevant because sometimes states are representing those collective aspirations of people in a particular country. And I think this aspect that this right has both individual and collective dimension is, is absolutely vital in my view. Now going to uh, the duty bearers, of course, states have duties. And I would say here states have those duties both within their territory and jurisdiction, but they also have a duty extraterritorially. So states, let us say, let's take Norway as an example. So the government of Norway has a duty not only to ensure that the right to development is realized within its territory, 
but it also has to uh, ensure that Norway and its companies do not do anything which undermine that right of people outside Norway. So that is also a very key element of this, right? And that's where the uh, extraterritorial dimensions of these duties of states become relevant. I will also add here the, uh, the focus on international cooperation and uh, solidarity, which is considered increasingly relevant in the context of sustainable development goals or, or the climate change issue that we're talking about. But the same considerations apply in relation to right to development. So the expectation is that states will take individually certain measures, but they will also act collectively to realize those rights, including the right to development. But in addition to, as you rightly uh, pointed out, then uh, there are other non-state actors, and this is just a catchphrase, non-state actors that will capture, I would say, UN agencies that will capture development partners, public banks who are financing many projects, businesses, NGOs, universities. And I would say all of us as individuals, we also have responsibilities, at least moral responsibilities to, to ensure that our fellow beings are able to realize right to development. So I'll frame it in, in a very holistic sense. You are, of course, a professor of law. And I have a bone to pick with you guys because some of this stuff sounds really nice and fancy. And the UN keeps agreeing and adopting all these wonderful declarations, which are not binding. This one is not binding. And as I understand it, one of the sort of the value added of human rights or any of these declarations is when it's binding, when you force countries and states to actually adopt and, and follow up, then they have some sort of impact. But the threshold is pretty low for these fancy declarations that are not binding. And I noticed that in the literature, there are differing opinions, even among legal scholars, whether there is a legalistic right to development, whether this can be enforced at all. So, Surya, let me just challenge you to make a persuasive case that even these non-binding declarations have a value. If you look at the world today, it's pretty depressing, you know? I mean, in terms of what the UN Secretary General said a few months ago at the, at the General Assembly, only 15% of the UN Sustainable Development Goals targets are on track. So we're way off track. We have wars going on. Countries are not necessarily respecting even binding agreements. What about these non-binding declarations? So please make a case for us to, to take this right more seriously and to, to aggressively pursue its fulfillment. That's a challenging question, but a very good question. And I think partly you answered your own question towards the end when you said that even the binding uh, international standards are not being taken seriously by the states. So I would like to make a distinction between bindingness on paper and bindingness in practice. As you rightly uh, acknowledge that this uh, Declaration of Right to Development is, is not a binding instrument. This is, this is merely a declaration. But same applies to Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That is also a declaration. So it's not uh, legally speaking binding. Of course, uh, parts of it and the elements of it have become kind of binding as part of customary international law. So that's a separate issue. So when it comes to right to development, it's not binding, though a process is on. And in fact, very recently, uh, Human Rights Council uh, in, I think in October, they sent uh, the draft covenant on right to development to General Assembly in New York for further uh, negotiation and action. 
So let us hope in a couple of years, there is a binding instrument. And for your awareness and, and for the uh, benefit of listeners, there's a tremendous amount of discussion amongst the states. What should we call this instrument? Should we call it a covenant or convention? Tell us about the subtle differences. What do these two terms mean? What, what are the similarities and differences? That is the beauty of it, that legally speaking, you talked about law, right? legally speaking, there is no distinction between a covenant and convention. But in terms of politics and the diplomacy of international relations, some states are making an argument that right to development is as critical, as important as the rights recognized in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, as well as the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. So they would like to use the word covenant in relation to right to development, because that would put this covenant that is being negotiated in New York now at par with ICCPR and ICSCR. Though other instruments of human rights, let us say dealing with rights of the child, so it's, it's not covenant, it's called convention. So most of these conventions are documenting or unpacking specialized human rights of minorities and children and women and so on and so forth. And the word is convention. So that is the diplomacy and the politics and the, and the articulation of this. But going back to your original question, right? Why, why is this right important? And I would say that we should look at merely not international law, but we should also look at the domestic law. So right to development is recognized in constitutions of certain countries. Two countries that come easily to my mind are from Africa, and that, and that shows how progressive some of these constitutions are. So Ethiopia and Malawi, the constitution of these two countries, uh, they acknowledge expressly right to development. So in, in that sense, the right is binding, at least in those jurisdictions. We also have this right uh, recognized in uh, human rights instruments and charters which are regional in nature, let's say with ASEAN or African Charter or the uh, Charter in, in the Americas, you know, dealing with those issues. So I think we have, I would say, a body of law, soft standards, as well as binding standards, a combination of it, which can be used to uh, articulate the elements of this right. But if I could say then, uh, we should see these instruments as not creating this right. Rather, they're merely recognizing this right and its elements. And they're trying to impose these duties and, and uh, unpacking what states and others should be doing. Because these, all these human rights are rooted in the idea of human dignity. And what can one think of as dignity without being able to realize this holistic idea of development, which is economic, social, political, and cultural. So that will be my argument. Since you mentioned Malawi, it reminded me of some interviews I was doing with the justices of the Supreme Court in Malawi several years ago. I was talking about development, poverty reduction. They have a very progressive constitution. It, it's a relatively new constitution. So, you know, they have sections on human rights, right to development, all of that. Now, when I was speaking to the justices, some of them were, I suppose, from a very conservative school saying basically that we mainly prioritize the first generation rights, that civil and political rights, those are the most important ones. 
And even though we have the right to development, even though we mention development issues in the constitution, we do not want to actively go and enforce it because our understanding is, this is the chief justices uh, speaking, our understanding is that if the government has the resources, it'll do it. So it's not our job to go and, you know, like in many other countries, there have been public interest litigation forcing the, the courts to go and sort of condemn and to come up with a verdict criticizing the government. The Malawian justices were saying, you know, as long as the government respects civil and political rights, that's fine. If they have money, if they have the time, the resources, I'm sure they will, you know, we're sure they will promote development. And I was a bit struck, Surya, with that argument. It was almost like saying, putting a lot of faith in the in the benevolence of whoever was ruling. And so that is where my frustration comes in a way, you know, that most courts seem to be preoccupied. I don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, with that civil and political rights element, whereas development seen in terms of economic, social and cultural rights gets a bit of a backseat. I think you're spot on. So, so historically, and I think it goes back to the uh, the idea of human rights within the UN system and how these uh, civil and political rights. Because if you look at UDHR, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it makes no distinction whatsoever between civil and political rights on the one hand and social, economic, and cultural rights on the other hand. But when it came to the codification of these rights into the binding instruments as a covenants those two different covenants were negotiated. And I think one reason for that was that certain countries, especially if I could say the global North countries, they felt, oh, human rights, justiciability is only about civil and political rights. I think there is a shift uh, in, over the years, but that has been the traditional paradigm. And I would say the conversations that you're referring to in Malawi can be uh, transplanted to other jurisdictions as well. And, and that historical legacy, I think, continues because that's how Law schools may be teaching human rights in some places. That's how lawyers and judges are being perhaps brought in, uh, brought up uh, in the context of what human rights should look like. But I think if we look at more recent scholarship and also the uh, progressive constitution, so for instance, India, the constitution adopted in 1950s, it puts uh, socioeconomic and cultural rights as directive principles of state policy, which are non-justiciable. So in a way, the Indian constitution may be regarded as progressive because it was drafted in around late 1940s. So that point of time, it was a progressive constitution to acknowledge those rights, even if non-justiciable, but include them as part of the constitution. But more recent constitutions, let us say, including of South Africa and elsewhere, Malawi and elsewhere, including Nepal. And so, so you can see this trend elsewhere outside Africa as well they are including social, economic, and cultural rights expressly as justiciable on paper. Now, there has to be a shift in mindset. And this mindset, let me take a very concrete example. Let us say access to internet. So I think this may be regarded and will be regarded as a civil and political right, I believe. But we should not assume that merely because it is a civil and political right, it requires no allocation of resources. So even realizing civil and political rights, resources are needed. And this uh, misimpression that resources and how much a particular state has, that issue is relevant only for socioeconomic rights and cultural rights is, is a misleading proposition. All rights have positive and negative dimensions, all rights, including civil and political rights, as well as socioeconomic rights, and same applies to right to development. 
So right to development also expects each one of us to take certain measures. So it's not merely uh, giving, um, let us say, all the things to people. Let us say you create schools and you provide free education and they are teachers and you provide free books and all the facilities and public transport is provided, let us say, free for, for kids and even universities to go to universities or schools and colleges. But what if the, the kids, the students don't study? And I think that is where the agency element becomes crucial. So states can allocate resources and provide those facilities, but human beings, each one of us also has to actively take steps to realize the right to development. And I think that's where it's also diversity also comes into picture, right? So what may be the aspiration of person A may be different from the aspiration of person B. And of course, uh, that may change from region to region and country to country as well. I would suggest that all rights require resources and the courts, not just in Malawi, but other jurisdictions as well, they should adopt a progressive view on human rights. They should see their role as guardian of human rights and remind the executive and the legislature to do their best within the uh, permissible resources and all that to realize all these rights. And sometimes courts can be a good reminder to these states that you need to take some policy measures to also enhance your resources. For instance, taxation. Many companies are evading tax. And of course, if companies evade tax, then, then the governments will not have resources. So one judge may think that because they don't have the resources, it is fine for us not to do anything about it. But another judge may think, oh, if you don't have the resources, you should do something to have more resources. It's not sufficient to sit with the pot of the money you have. Can you do something about it? Can you, can you uh, let us say, impose a wealth tax on uh, rich people? Can, can you do something around tax avoidance by companies at a multilateral level? So I think uh, that will be my reaction that uh, judges, lawyers, university uh, professors, students, I think all of us have to take a more holistic vision of these human rights, including the right to development. See the interdependence of these rights. You know, I, I think some of the challenge in this field is that when we talk about rights, when we talk about human rights, we, and I'm saying maybe the general public, usually thinks that the main duty bearer is the state. It's not all these other actors. So that limits our vision. And in relation to how I understand the right to development is similar to what you mentioned is in the Indian constitution, the directive principles of state policy that are not justiciable, but are mainly sort of guiding principles that will guide state behavior but they're not fundamental rights that are justiciable. If I understand the situation correctly, Surya, we are at this moment in that directive principles of state policy phase with the right to development. But as you said, there is an ongoing process in the UN to make them justiciable, either it's a convention or a covenant, and thereby more of a case of fundamental rights. Do you think by moving from this non-justiciable to the justiciable phase will change things radically? I mean, will it, will it make others think differently? Will it make states and non-state actors act differently because suddenly there's a shift that this is now more binding? 
And if so, how will that change the discourse? I think the answer is both yes and no. I personally believe, uh, not everyone may agree with this, I personally believe that right to development is a human right already. We don't need a covenant. We don't need the adoption of a covenant. We don't need ratification of this instrument at the international level because this right is already there. At the same time, I believe that in the human rights field and in the international human rights field, it is critical to have legal status of those rights. So from that perspective, I support the idea of negotiating and adopting a covenant on the right to development. And that should definitely have uh, an important signaling effect in terms of the importance that this right has in the international arena. This also could become relevant how, how states then negotiate, uh, let us say, their trade and investment agreements. Because once a right is recognized at the international level, it has implications, it has a ripple effect. So I think it will definitely have some positive impact on the ecosystem. At the same time, I don't believe, Dan, that uh, merely uh, adopting conventions and ratifying those conventions would ensure that those rights are realized in practice. I mean, as we speak, uh, we have a serious conflict going on in Israel-Palestine, the Gaza situation, right? And we have very uh, detailed rules in Geneva Conventions. International humanitarian law is very clear in terms of how, in situations of conflict, the party should be engaging. And as you would know, and uh, many listeners would appreciate, uh, both sides and all sides are acting in breach of those international obligations, which are legally binding, by the way. So... That is the crisis definitely we have uh, in the international law framework, especially when it comes to human rights law, that the rule-based uh, system is somehow collapsing, unfortunately. And because of that, there is no guarantee then that merely because the covenant is adopted in two years' time, that would change things dramatically on the ground. And that's why as part of my mandate, I'm focusing on how do we operationalize this right at the national level or even going beyond national level, because the local systems of governance, cities, villages, I think they are a very crucial component in terms of realizing right to development. I do think, however, that making something binding, making it legally enforceable will be of some benefit or of considerable benefit, perhaps, because when I speak to NGOs or civil society actors, concerned citizens, social movements, if you look at what has happened in terms of the right to food in India, in terms of the right to health in South Africa, there's been progressive legislation that has been facilitated by public interest litigation, where you've had movements, civil society organizations, alliances going to court saying this is a matter of life and death and the government is not doing enough. So if you can show that the government is not acting to promote, protect, and fulfill certain rights that are codified, that are fundamental, then you can hold the government to account. And that's when the courts come in. That's how I understand, Surya, as a non-legal scholar, the value of human rights that are justiciable. That's the value of the covenant convention. I think that is definitely then added value in terms of courts using that instrument. But of course, those states have to ratify and operationalize that right at the domestic level. They have to adopt a law because in many systems, one cannot merely refer to an international covenant to go before the court, right? 
the state has to enact a law. But, but that, that is likely to happen if a state has ratified and they will operationalize it and domesticate that particular covenant. I will also add a couple of other dimensions in addition to justiciability dimension that you alluded to. Uh, there are also other advantages of creating those binding instruments uh, in relation to human rights, including the right to development. And one of such dimensions is that it provides leverage to states in, in relation to how they negotiate in international relations. Let us say Norway, the government of Norway has to negotiate a trade or investment agreement tomorrow, let us say with Cambodia or Vietnam or India or Bhutan or any country for that matter. If this covenant on the right to development is adopted by the General Assembly, the government of Nepal or Bhutan could say, oh, we should include this right as one of the objectives of this trade or investment agreement, because that is something that has, is a legal right. You know? So it also provides that leverage to states in negotiating trade and investment agreements. So you mean it'll make some of these states get a better deal and put greater responsibility on high-income countries to do more development-related stuff in low-income countries? Is that what you mean? I mean, I did not mean that, but that is also, in fact, <laughs> uh, an implication. <laughs> that is also an implication because, in fact, you raised a good point, and that allows me to bring in another dimension. And then that dimension is that one of the main reasons why developed countries are skeptical of this right is precisely the, the, the point that you made. They think that once this right is codified into a covenant, a binding instrument, then that would entail on us a duty to do everything within our means to realize the right to development in developing countries or least developing countries. You know? So that is definitely a concern that they have, and that's why they are not very supportive of the right, or they are not supportive of this idea of creating this right into a legally binding instrument. But going back to my earlier point, Dan, if I may, the codification or the legalization of this right to development is also relevant for advocacy purposes. Human rights are not merely for uh, states and individuals and the court systems and law and lawyers are, of course, uh, a key component of it. But often law has limitations. Law and lawyers and judges and the court system, often they are slow, they are reactive, they're patchy or very expensive also often, right? So we should also see human rights operating outside the legal boundaries. And I think that's where sociology, economics, political science, history, all these other dimensions of human rights become very crucial. So codification of human rights would also add value to the advocacy. It will add value to the education at universities, right? So that could be an argument, oh, we have a new covenant on right to development. So there could be a push for teaching right to development at universities. So there could be a more research agenda. There could be funding provided for those particular issues. I would say it has multiple advantages and benefits, uh, the legalization of right to development. At the same time, as I mentioned earlier, we should see these conventions or covenant, whatever we call it, as merely a means to achieve an end. Conventions are not the end. These are merely tools. And I would say one of the tools. There are many other ways to realize human rights, including the right to development. And I very much hope that states and other actors see this uh, negotiation process in that sense. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that because when you first mentioned to me this process about codifying this or making this into a covenant or a convention, I thought, well, those countries that are actually pushing for it must be the so-called global south. 
and those who are resisting it would be the so-called global north. I mean, that, that is how, you know, I was thinking, and it seems that that is perhaps generally the case. But, you know, when I'm thinking about the right to develop, and at least when I began first hearing about it, you know, and talking with my former colleague, Arjun Sengupta, who was in, had the same position, I think, as you, as a special rapporteur, then there was quite a lot of focus on one, perhaps, of those four principles that you outlined earlier, which is the right to self-determination, this focus on, you know, sovereignty over territory or natural resources. Increasingly, I see, Surya, there's a movement towards, and perhaps thanks to the 2030 Agenda, because of the Sustainable Development Goals, now even more focused than before, greater attention on distribution, leaving no one behind, you know, making sure there's more inclusion in the development process rather than exclusion, uh, making sure that there is a focus on the fact that we humans are not very homogeneous. We have a lot of different types of people who live in a particular country. We can't discriminate against them. And increasingly also the fourth element, which is the intergenerational equity aspect, which is a fundamental pillar of the sustainable development discourse, that we may enjoy the right to development today, but we can't compromise future generations, their ability, their enjoyment, participation, contribution to the right to development. So this complicates the arena quite a lot, as I see it, moving from self-determination, which was perhaps difficult, but still, you know, easily understood to many of these issues that also entail future generations. What is your take on that shift or that pendulum shift? And perhaps also the concept becoming, in a way, some would say inflated with many, many aspects to this. Some uh, states and other actors, including scholars, dismiss the idea of right to development because of this inflation point. For them, it is merely a basket of rights, and that's why it, it doesn't really add any value. And, and in my report uh, to the council, I try to outline some value-added elements of right to development, that why, as an independent right, it is, it is crucial. And one example I give there is that we often talk about that the human rights are interdependent and they're interlinked and all this, right? And I'm saying that right to development is a live example of this interdependence of human rights because it is capturing civil, political, economic, social, and cultural dimension of human rights together. And it is also highlighting the role of not only states, but other, other actors. It is also giving the importance to individuals and all that. Now, in relation to uh, the earlier focus on self-determination, and now mostly we're talking about intergenerational equity, sustainability of the development and all that. So I think uh, that is definitely a complexity. But I would say all these considerations have been there from the very beginning. The shift is mo mostly about that what aspect is getting more traction at a given point of time. For instance, because of the growing poverty and inequality fair distribution is becoming more and more limelight, and that's where we can trace the idea of leaving no one behind, right? So I think that is, that is a key component of that. Uh, because of the climate crisis, the issue of intergenerational equity is becoming more and more relevant. But if you go back to the Rio Declaration, 1992, I mean, those things were there. If you look at uh, the Vienna Declaration, we are celebrating 30th anniversary of Vienna Declaration than this year, as well as UDHR 75, 
So I think all these elements, if you look at holistically, uh, they are there on paper right, in terms of normative standards. What we have to appreciate in my view is this, that right to development is not a license to destroy the planet. So states have, uh, as well as people, uh, including indigenous peoples, they definitely have the right to self-determination. They have to manage their resources well and all that, and they have uh, legitimate aspirations to grow. But these developing states and people there, they don't need to follow the development trajectory and the pathway that has been adopted by other countries in the past. And if we made certain mistakes and certain countries made those mistakes, we should learn from those mistakes rather than following the same pathway. So in my report, Dan, I articulated that we need a new model of development, and I'm calling it planet-centered participatory development. So, so just for your understanding, uh, I'm highlighting the relevance of planet-centered, not people-centered, because people are often, and me included, are often selfish. So if you give uh, people the right to decide what they want to do, it, they will just focus on themselves and they will leave behind plants and animals. So I'm saying that this idea of SDGs leaving no one behind should be re-articulated and reimagined. And it should include not only human beings, but also plants and animals. So entire ecosystem, because we can't leave behind trees and develop and then, then realize, oh, without trees, we can't survive. Or without animals, we cannot survive. So, so the whole biodiversity angle the whole idea of nature and planet together, the ecosystem is, is very, very critical in my view. So I think we should look at right to development from that particular perspective. And it is also crucial then that people have a say in those decision-making processes. Let me pick an example, if I could, from my own country, India. So almost 10 years back, I went to um, one of the states, which is a major mining state, Odisha. So I was visiting that state and I was visiting, visiting a coal-fired power plant, huge power plant, uh, more than 1,000 megawatt capacity every year. And what paradoxical thing I found there and saw firsthand is this, that the farmers whose land was taken to build this power plant, they were living in small huts across the power plant. So I'm standing on this road. On my left-hand side is the power plant. On my right-hand side are the uh, small huts of those farmers on the agricultural land is still with them and they did not have electricity. So that is the paradox of development I would like to challenge. So we should not be looking at creating shopping malls. I give, I give a second example. So a couple of months back, I was in Addis Ababa. So there was uh, a regional consultation on right to development for Africa, uh, Dan there. And the question I was asking them is that, of course, of course, you have aspiration to realize right to development, but you should be asking this question, what does this mean for you? Does it mean that you should have air-conditioned shopping malls and that is the right to development and that is where you go in a supermarket to buy fruits and vegetables? Or you could conceive right to development in a different sense and you can imagine that fruits and vegetables could be sold and bought on small shops everywhere in the street and there is no air condition needed. Because now if you have air condition, then we're talking about climate, climate uh, footprint and, and all those uh, particular implications, right? Let me give a third example, if I may. When I was growing up as a child, I knew, at least my parents, that's how I grew up. My parents made us understand that the fruits and vegetables have seasons. So you don't eat apples and oranges throughout the year. You eat apples in India. At least that's how it used to be when I was growing up 20, 30 years back in winter. 
and you will not get apples in the other season. You will get watermelons in summer, for instance, and you will not get watermelon in the winter. But that has completely changed because of the globalized model. So is this the development we're talking about or do we need to rethink those models of economic growth and development? Because if the apples are being transported 6,000 miles, it has carbon footprint. And you may think, oh, we are creating jobs for these workers. But the point is, are you exploiting those workers and those resources or not? So I think these are complex questions. But as part of my mandate, I am uh, challenging those assumptions about the current models of economic growth and development then. Much of what you just said reminds me of this ongoing discourse we are having on loss and damage. And from looking at it from, say, Norway's perspective, from rich country perspective, so-called global north, there is this frustration that there are demands for more money for historical injustices or whatever without there being a viable plan being made by the countries demanding this money that there is a rush to create a mechanism to compensate for misusing Earth's resources to become rich, as many rich countries have, but you need a plan. From, from the other perspective, from low-income country perspective, you know, they say, well, first, let's get the money. We also have a plan. It's not like we don't want to do it. The big problem is we need money. So it seems a bit similar to this, this right to development discourse that you were alluding to. A final set of issues I wanted to talk to you about is the practical implementation. You mentioned some of the, the examples, and there are two things that I'd like to hear your views on. One is something where I see a very concrete application of the right to development is in relation to the Bridgetown Initiative, where there is this call for a new economic world order which seems to resonate with much of what you've just said about the right to development. The second could be termed as maybe some best practices or a concrete example of implementation is the role of businesses. Now, you have you know done extensive work on this, the role of businesses in realizing the right to development. And there are many, many sort of agreements. You have the United Nations Global Compact. You have UN guiding principles on, on businesses. There are now increasingly all kinds of principles for responsible investments that are being advocated. Do you see businesses, and we, because we've talked quite a lot about states, if you talk about businesses, could they be seen as good examples, at least some who have somehow understood and changed their behavior based on this right, that they are perhaps consulting more, that they are more aware of not just not doing harm, but doing something more positive to facilitate the enjoyment of that right. Do you see that? Because businesses are often criticized for not doing these things, but in some parts of the world, there has been progress, has there not? Well, definitely. I mean, so it's difficult to say that all businesses are not doing the right thing or, or, uh, or, or they are doing the right thing. So there are definitely some good practice examples uh, in terms of businesses. Uh, they have gone out of their way to, let us say, create access to Internet in certain remote 
countries, uh, certain companies have uh, taken concrete measures to improve gender equality issues in the workforce, you know. Some companies at least have made a commitment to move towards a living wage to their workers and all that. So definitely there, there are instances of companies taking those steps and in terms of realizing sustainable development goals. The difficulty often is this, that the primary consideration for businesses is about profit maximization for shareholders. And I think that is the real difficulty I see. And that's where... Um, I believe that we need to think of business as a social enterprise going forward. So the role of businesses, of course, is to create profit, but the profit could be seen in a different sense. It could be near merely dollars. It could also be seen in terms of ensuring that there's less pollution. It, it could be also be in terms of saving lives during the pandemic. If, if companies can provide vaccines at an affordable price, that is profit for society. You're saving the lives of thousands of people. So how do you reconceptualize the idea of business and society? And I think that's where we should be looking at. So do no harm that you mentioned uh, in line with the UN guiding principles and business and human rights or other international standards. That is the starting point. That is the floor. The difficulty starts when we start equating this floor with the ceiling. Floor is not the ceiling. Businesses, all businesses should do the basic do no harm. But they should also go beyond that and actively take positive steps to realize sustainable development goals and contribute to the realization of right to development. And I give concrete examples in my report. For instance, if they can pay a living wage, that would definitely reduce inequalities. Surya, the question I still have is, I mean, you know, what will push businesses to do that? Because profit is what they say very openly. Without the profit incentive, they're not many of them would not be interested. You could have the business case, you could have the moral case, it's the business case that is the dominant one. So is it naming and shaming? Is it getting a better reputation? What is it apart from profit? What else could motivate them to do these additional things going beyond just you know not doing harm, but to doing something more sort of positively, uh, promoting positive human rights? I think like human beings, businesses are also driven by different considerations. So some could be driven by that because there are binding standards and that they're emerging in Europe, as you rightly mentioned a couple of minutes back. So those legislation may push certain countries to take the human rights seriously in terms of their business businesses. But some other business leaders may think in terms of their future workforce, because increasingly, human rights issues, environmental issues, climate issues are becoming more and more critical for the young generation. And if that young generation is also going to be your employee for a workforce, it is going to be your potential investors or potential consumers in the future, then you should look at those future stakeholders as well. So there are uh, a variety of considerations that may motivate businesses. Uh, some are definitely driven by law, some are driven by uh, philanthropic considerations or moral considerations. There are also uh, businesses which may be driven by faith-based values that we, we need to share what we gain from society. So I think we need to harness the uh, potential of all these diverse motivating considerations because I doubt uh, one silver bullet is there or that will motivate all the businesses to contribute positively. And I think that's where uh, I'm starting a new project, Dan, as part of this new mandate. And that project is looking at business models. 
what do we need to change in terms of business models? And I think that is where the whole idea of uh, the role and purpose of business in society has to be thought through. Because often we talk about shareholder primacy as the given, but it's not given that shareholder primacy has, has, uh, has the thing. Uh, the example I was about to give to you, Dan, a couple of minutes back is about the T-shirt. Let us say a T-shirt being sold in Europe for th- 45 euros. The question we should be asking is how much um, money that worker in Bangladesh or Cambodia or Vietnam is making out of their 45 euros. I have, I have listened to these companies in the supply chains and they tell me that these buyers, companies, the brands, the big brands, they talk all good things on their website in the reports and all that, but they are not willing to pay us two cents more for each t-shirt to improve the condition of workers in the global south. So I think we need to change this mindset that if businesses are adding value, then that value creation has to be more inclusive. It cannot be just benefiting top 5% people in society. And I think we need to rethink those ideas and law has a role to play there, but I think we need to go beyond law and economics and other um, politics would have a key role to play, I would say. Because when we're talking about elections, not every, but many countries, we have those freebies being offered, right? So how do we uh, bring right to development to discourse uh, and sustainability of that discourse as part of those political manifestos? Can political parties engage in a more serious note on those development considerations? So I think these are things uh, that, that we should mainstream going forward. I'm looking forward to following the rest of your work as part of your mandate in the UN. Thank you very much, Surya, for coming on my show today. This was great fun. Thank you very much, Dan, for having me. And uh, I hope uh, that listeners would benefit from some of these uh, exchanges. And I invite them to uh, check out my website for further information and look forward to working with all the stakeholders going forward. Thank you again for having me. If you enjoyed this conversation, please spread the news among friends and colleagues and share the link to the podcast on social media. You can tag us on Twitter at Global Dev Pod and Dan Bannock. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo. Please email your questions, comments and suggestions to Development at gmail.com.